Welcome to The Colour Green, a podcast exploring the connections between race, the environment and social justice. My name is Lola Young and I'm an independent crossbench peer in the House of Lords, but also incredibly interested in this area of work. So, in each episode, I speak to an artist, activist or creative professional who's worked at the intersection of culture and climate to find out more about their work and their relationship with the environment. This podcast is brought to you by Julie's Bicycle, a London-based charity that supports and empowers the creative community to act on climate change and environmental sustainability. In this episode, I'm joined by Farah Ahmed, an artist and climate justice activist concerned with the intersection between culture and inequality and the need for systemic change. She is also the producer of these podcasts. Walthamstow wetlands, which is a beautiful piece of, it's almost as if a slice of the countryside has been put in just by Tottenham, between Tottenham and Walthamstow, and it's absolutely gorgeous. We've seen all kinds of birds, including a peregrine falcon, which is the high spot of the morning so far. And I'm here with Farah Ahmed, who's a committed campaigner around environmental issues and creativity. And so I'm hoping to find out from Farah what it is that has made her so interested in this area of work and why she's so committed. So Farah, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi. Um, So I'm Farah and I work at Julie's Bicycle. And I suppose the reason why I am so interested in this work is because it connects to every single other like facet of life climate change isn't something that's siloed away and and is something to be dealt with by itself it intersects with all of the other conversations we have about race about gender about religion even about sexuality they're all connected um do do you think you, you say that and i agree with you but do you think other people see it that way or do you think that's a a more or less new kind of analysis that's coming forward? I think it's an analysis which hasn't really made its way into like the sort of mainstream conversation about environmentalism or about, or about climate change. And I suppose that's our challenge. Mm. That's, I suppose, part of the reason why we're doing this podcast as well is to change this perception of who environmentalism is for and what it means to be a person of colour in, in modern Britain. Uh, whatever modern Britain is, our challenge is to uncover these these voices because I think they've always been there and they, they're the people who have been pushing uh, a lot of these conversations forward but we're just not hearing them enough. Mm. So you've, been, you've had this commitment to looking at the different sort of intersections between issues around race, issues around sexuality, issues around environmentalism, how they all fit together. What brought you to that kind of view? Where did it all start? I think it was a complete accident, actually. I got this job at Julie's Bicycle, and to be honest, felt like I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and then it all sort of started to fall into place. It wasn't that, like, because I hadn't read the right environmental books that I didn't 
feel it. Did you not feel it before? Did you not have a sort of sense of the urgency around climate change or environmental justice? I did, but I think that what I felt like was that I'd sort of been speaking a different language to express it. Right. Like my conversations were about food security um, and about my housing um, and they were conversations that I just didn't see as like linking in so dramatically to talking about race and talking about gender and all the other things I just didn't understand how all of those things fit together but I mean I've been a vegetarian since I was god 19 I won't say how long ago that was. <laughs> so about a year. <laughs> a little bit longer. But I did that because when I was 18, I went to Pakistan to visit my family. And I suppose I was just really, really struck by inequality. Not that I hadn't seen it in Britain. I haven't grown up in a, in a massively like wealthy or moneyed environment at all. There was something else that like my family are in Kashmir and... The people who are living in the house next door were refugees from partition. Mm-hmm. So it was just sort of seeing that real, real disparity and how all of those things are still affecting people's lives there. And so I came home and was like, right, takes a huge amount more resources to produce a meat-eating diet, which my family uh, eat a lot of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing that. Yeah, my family weren't very pleased about that. Oh, really? It's, I think they saw it as like a cultural affront. Was that because of traditions within the family? Yeah. Religious affiliation? Yeah, they, they had come from the sort of school of thought of like, God has put animals on this earth for us to have dominion over, for us to eat. And I don't subscribe to that. Right. They didn't, they also just didn't have a frame of reference for vegetarianism Mm -hmm. beyond actually Hinduism because uh, my my dad grew up in Pakistan so yeah their first thought was like have have you converted to Hinduism is that, <laughs> is that what has happened here but yeah so hopefully I've been able to change some minds <laughs> so you, you you mentioned inequality mm. before obviously it's hugely obvious especially in London actually although some people seem to think everybody's wealthy in London so you've lived in London for a long time, haven't you? For nine years. For nine years. Well, that's some some time. And so we're here today and you can hear the birds chirping in the background and the odd bicycle running by. And apart from that and a little bit of industrial noise, it, it, it's pretty serene. Mm. So have you lived in spots like this in London? Is this your kind of usual sort of area that you've lived in? No, I've never actually been to Walthamstow Wetlands before. Really? Why not? <laughs> because I just didn't know it was here. Ah, it, and I'm not going to lie, I don't come up to North London very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of actively trying to seek out these spaces a lot more because I think I've lived in some really horrible places. Mm. Um, and horrible in what way? Oh, uh, I lived in one flat that was on the sort of corner of Deptford High Street and New Cross Road. Right. Um, it's so really busy. busy. It's really polluted. And I got sick from living in that flat. Mm-hmm. I got quite severe bronchitis. Mm-hmm. And it was recurring every every winter. I had, like, black mould. It was freezing in my room. And the landlord told me that the, the mould was uh, because of my breathing. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't supposed to breathe yeah, in Yeah, I was like, like, I'll stop that it. filthy I'll habit, stop shall I? Stop that dirty, dirty yeah. thing. Oh, how funny. Um, well, it would be funny if it wasn't so awful. Yeah, so I lived there for 
over two years because that's really all I could afford to to do. Well, this comes back to the whole inequality thing, doesn't it? Yeah. So did you at that point start to think about issues around pollution and uh, traffic pollution in particular? Yeah, like I I couldn't open my window Mm. because it was so heavy with the air was so heavy with pollution and my front door I had to like wash constantly because it would just turn black from all of the car fumes and I lived right next to a school with quite a lot of uh from what I could tell like young black kids Mm. so it was you know that that doesn't happen in in Hampstead Mm. it's Mm. not happening in Richmond Mm. but it's happening in Deptford Mm. and Tottenham and Tottenham Mm. (laughs) and we have to really make the links about why all those things are happening and what that means for the people living there. Mm-hmm. There's um, a whole campaign at the moment actually uh, called Justice for Ella. Oh, yes. And that's about, about a young girl about who was nine and she she died uh, because of uh, asthma-related mm-hmm. problems because of the, of the air pollution in mm-hmm. the area. I think she's from Tottenham maybe as well. can't remember. Maybe. I remember seeing um, the case. But I know there's something in uh, New Cross at the moment with a school that's um, planning to build a new entrance off the main road again. Mm. And it's like these are just constant like conversations mm. that are, are not being linked to these wider struggles or they're not being talked about in, in sort of wider news outlets. And also within the environmental uh, movement, do you think that there's a lack of discussion of that kind of connection that you're making? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I go into, I go into meetings and events, quite often one of maybe three or four people of colour in the mm, room. Mm. We all know one another, mm. we say hi. Um, I really would like to go to an event where I don't know people. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and... Mm. You know, the conversations are about things like plastics, but it doesn't then link back to oil extraction and, you know, organic food. But, you know, what about crop failures? And it's this kind of quite surface level discussion that I think that we're having sometimes, which doesn't go back and doesn't consider the impacts that that our actions and our conversations are having much, much earlier in the process mm, right the way down the supply chain as yeah, it were. and yeah. in terms of the impact on the global south who are now being told that they've got to clean up their act yeah it's just it makes me laugh sometimes honestly like okay we'll come and mess everything up for you but you've got to fix it and like what <laughs> so what is it that you think you can contribute to this these ways of thinking, the discourse on environmental justice, social injustice, racial injustice and inequalities, where do you think you can make an input and how? I think that a lot of what I want to be doing and the sort of position that I, that I feel like I'm in is one of sort of facilitation and bringing people together, building a community. Again, sort of why we're doing this podcast is because I think it's really important to showcase people and to, to create a confidence mm-hmm. amongst people of colour in the UK who might never have even known that these conversations were happening or maybe the, they have seen things happening in the areas that they live but they don't have the words for it. And I want to lift those people up and create a confidence within them to to be part of this wider movement and I also on a sort of personal level I'm trying to to do this 
sort of community building stuff in my mm. own time, I think mm. it's really important to keep making connections on the ground. Do you think sometimes some of those things, I'm not saying with you, but some of those things can be a little bit patronizing? It's like, you know, we're, we're here to teach you how to think about it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> now don't buy, don't get any plastic bags. And, you know, so yeah. how do you avoid that kind of sense of, you know, we're coming to sort you lot out? How do you avoid that? Is that related to what you're talking about in terms of community building? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's about building communities that are led by the communities. It's not led by me. I'm just making the connections between between mm-hmm. things. But giving the support. Yeah, and access also. I have access. Mm-hmm. You know, I work at Julie's Bicycle. Right. We work with a lot of arts organisations. You're a baroness. Oh, yeah. so <laughs> you I forget am. about that sometimes. Yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> but <laughs> that's what I can do. Mm. But really, it's not up to me to be a gatekeeper. Mm. No, absolutely not. And I think... You know, what you're saying is right. There'll be people in those communities who know what is going on, but maybe they have other, pri- what they see as other priorities. Mm. And maybe, I don't know, I don't know, because it is really tough, I think. It's tough to say to people, you know, who might have very little to say, well, look, you know, here's how you can change your lifestyle. When, when all around they see all these people being totally profligate with all the resources that they have and, you know, fancy cars and all the rest of it. I mean, what what is it that we're asking of people and how can we engage them in a way that makes sense to them without, as I say, being patronising or asking them to make disproportionate sacrifices? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been in the position where I've worked three waitressing jobs at once and still actually barely afforded to like I, I, the maths doesn't add up mm, for, mm. for that period of my life not quite sure how I ate um, so if somebody comes along and says to you now don't buy anything with plastic in it I, I'll be like <laughs> jog on <laughs> I'm not even sure what I did eat yeah. that, that whole time and that's the thing is when we don't have those voices in this sort of bigger environmental movement then it does become a sort of talking down exercise and we don't we can't afford to do that Mm-mm. it's Mm-mm. we've got uh, what 12 years um as the latest ipcc report said mm-hmm. we've got 12 years not to start doing something but mm. to be at yeah. the point where where we actually should have been years ago mm-hmm. So in that 12 years, are we going to go around, like, flogging people who are in no position to be buying Teslas? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or are we going to change a structure to create a world which works for everyone? Mm -hmm. Because that sort of equitable world is the only way that it can be a sustainable world as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that sustainability cuts in all different ways, doesn't it? It is about food you eat, the clothes you wear, how you travel from one spot to another. Mm. But it's also about being able to have, you know, if you think about the pleasure that we felt when we walked into this space, just 10, Mm. 15 minutes walk from the Victoria line, and you're immediately in this beautiful green, blue, and the swans and the falcons and the birdsong and everything. It's fantastic. So I think, you know, what are the ways in which we can help people to appreciate that this is what is at stake, this is part of what is at stake. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I um, I think that there's a lot to be said for even just creating the space and time in people's lives mm. to be in places like this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think they're such great spaces. I I have depression and I find that being out in nature just brings me so much joy mm-hmm. and I don't do it enough and it's really easy when you're bogged down in all that stuff, especially over winter and I just want to like lie in my bed and sit in my pajamas and order takeaway pizzas every day. When actually getting outside is the best thing that I could do. I'm breathing like much better air mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you can tell the difference even yeah. here can't you and listening to bird songs it's a really amazing way to recenter yourself and i i think that you know when when i was waitressing and when i was you know working 60 hours a week on my feet i never had time to come mm-hmm. out even to mm-hmm. like the local park really because mm-hmm. i was exhausted so it's like again it's all about those structures that dominate and dictate people's lives. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the next five to ten years, where would you like to be in terms of your relationship to this movement? Would Do you think there will be a, a movement uh, that specifically makes these links? Do you think the environmental movement would have changed in any way? What kind of part would you have played? What kind of part would you have played in that change if it, if it is taking place? Where do you want to be in ten years' time in relation to all of this? I want to be out of a job. <laughs> I want to work to the point where we don't have to be having these conversations, mm. but that's like, you know, the ideal mm. uh, dream world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, we're, we're working to create. I think this there will be a movement. I think there is a movement. I think it's growing. And <laughs> I think that as we grow in confidence we can make all of those links more explicit. I think the world is a really scary place at the moment, but that we can find hope in community and that community will give us the courage to take this work and this movement and this action further. Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, we've got 12 years until um, we reach a really crunch, crunch point. So let's hope that with all the work that you're doing and others, we can make some impact on that because it feels to me like we can't be divided on this. It's got to be, as it were, all hands to the pump. (laughs) You know, we've got to get out there and do stuff and, and help people to do stuff. So in terms then of our last topic for today, we usually plant a seed, but I see you've got a bag full of bulbs here. Can you say something about this? Yeah, so I've chosen some alliums to plant, partly because it's winter, it's a good time to to get them in the ground. Uh I am lucky enough to have a garden in the place that I live at the moment, but it's got astroturf decking. (laughs) (laughs) It's very easy to maintain, but (laughs) it really upsets me that it's not a bit more wild and I don't have as many birds and bees and bugs as I would really like so I'm planting some bulbs to try and encourage them Mm -hmm. because yeah I think it's really important in whatever outdoor space we're able to to have in London that we use them to encourage wildlife that's that's a tight fit in there so the jar has got beautiful rich compost in it but I think in order to germinate them. Well, it's not quite the same. What do you say with um, bulbs? You germinate seeds, but do you germinate bulbs? I don't know. But anyway, to get their roots <laughs> growing, 
that should be fine, shouldn't it? Yeah. And so hopefully, I, as I recall, alliums are particularly attractive to bees and yeah. things. And they're in the, aren't they in the onion and garlic family? I think they are, this yeah. one. Yeah. Ooh, beautiful flower, though. fall on my head. Oh, <laughs> lucky. This one is called uh, Sicilian honey garlic. Oh, so I'm, wow. I'm very excited about that. The, the, the um, flowers look beautiful as well. Yeah. So, so is it edible, then? I don't know. Mm. I'm going to, I'm going to, have a little look at these. Mm. Maybe they are. I love edible flowers. Yes. I also chose these because of the colours. Where we took the uh, the name, the colour green from for the podcast is from The Colour Purple by Alice Walker. And there's this, uh, this amazing passage in there that I, I keep coming back to whenever I walk through places like this. And I think it's Shug, says to Seely. I think it pisses God off when you walk through a field and you don't notice the colour purple. Ah, that's beautiful. What a lovely yeah. note to end on. Thank you once again, Farah. You know, these conversations that we've been having seem to me to run in parallel to a whole range of other conversations and debates. But what we can see here is how a diversity of perspectives can encompass a whole range of cultural ideas and practices on things like, for example, vegetarianism. And what are the connections between mental health and environmental justice? What constitutes an act of protest or an act of resistance? I think it's useful for us to keep revisiting these ideas, rethinking what they might mean. It might be not eating meat in the face of familial disapproval or disappointment. It might be planting a bulb in the midst of a sea of astroturf. Thanks for listening to The Colour Green. Check out the show notes for important links to Julie's bicycle and our guest's work. If you like the series, please like or rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. To stay updated about our work in arts, sustainability and climate justice, follow us on Twitter at Julie's Bicycle.